The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name's Cody. I'm one of the pastors here, and I had the privilege of being here all week at VBS, and I, I love kind of hiding behind the scenes. And it was awesome to be able to look out and just see all of the different people serving and all of the, the kids interacting. And um, as we were tearing down last night, uh, my son was off in the back. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I told a story about how they love, my kids love the VBS time. And we're still singing last year's songs all year. Um, my son, as they were tearing down, was actually in the back crying because it was over. So... Like Amanda said, I just want to echo that. Thank you for everyone that served. Thank you for everyone that gives to make things like VBS possible because they do make a difference. So um, I'm glad you're here today. I want to wish all the fathers out there happy Father's Day. I was going to tell a very sentimental story about how my daughter went and purchased this shirt for me and how um, you all could find her this morning and say, good job, Riley, on picking out that shirt. And then I got here this morning, and as I was sitting up here listening to the worship team practice, my dad walks in, and lo and behold, he's wearing the same shirt. And then I walk out in the lobby, and Zane is also wearing the same shirt. So apparently, um, I was talking to Jeremiah this morning, there's a YouTube video floating around there of a church where all of the wives of the church colluded together and got all of their husbands to wear the exact same shirt on the exact same day. So this is the Westway pastor's version of this. Um, If you see my daughter, you can still tell her good job, but even though it wasn't her plan. On the other hand, though, if you see Zane and Joe, make sure you tell them nice shirt because all the pastors are looking good today, thanks to our wives. Um, If you have your Bibles with you today, I want to invite you to turn to two places. The first is Exodus chapter 32, and uh, like John said last week, Exodus is probably the second easiest book to find because it's the second book in the Bible. So um, go ahead and turn to Exodus 32, and then after you find that, I want to encourage you to go ahead and flip to the New Testament and find the book of Acts, because we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 as well. Um, So if you want to stick a bookmark or your finger or uh, someone else's finger in there so you can make sure you have those two places marked. Um, If you don't have a physical paper Bible with you and you want to follow along on your phones, um, the Bible app on YouVersion, we have an event set up already so you can find that on your app and all of the scriptures that we're going to be in today will be right there hopefully in order for you as well. So this is week two of a series that we're calling The Songs We Sing and what we've been doing is talking about what worship is and also what worship is not. And last week, if you remember, John talked to us about how worship is not just the songs we sing. Uh, One of the things that that I've found, especially in the the job that I have and growing up in the church, is a lot of times when we think of the word worship, the very first thing that pops into our mind is the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning, when in reality, worship is so much more than that. And so sometimes we fall into the trap of, of thinking that Music is worship and only worship, and that only music is worship, and that was a really confusing way to say that. Um, But music is not just worship, and worship is not just music. Worship is our response to God because of what he has done for us in the past, what he's currently doing in our lives, and what he promises he will do for us in the future. And John also mentioned last week that worship is the recognition that only God is worthy to be praised. And it's also one of the ways that God chooses to place us into his story. 
And so all of these topics, all of these things that John talked about last week, and I'm going to kind of springboard off of that, but these are the things that we're going to be talking about over the course of June and July. So I hope that you're as excited as I am to continue through this series this summer. Now, this is where I need some crowd participation. I, before I came to Westway, I was in student ministry for over 10 years, and what I found is, especially with middle school and high school students, they have a very short attention span. And so you need to work things in like this where um, you can keep them engaged and focused. And what I found when I preached in what we called big church, that it works for adults too. So I need you all to give me some audience participation. I want to start off today with just a few questions. I'm going to rapid fire through a few categories. And what I want you to do is shout out your answers. So today we're going to talk about favorites. What are some of your favorite things? The first one is this, fast food restaurant. Shout it out. Runza, Culver's, McDonald's, Taco Bell, Wendy's? Okay. My favorite fast food restaurant is not here in Scotts Bluff, so anytime I travel anywhere, I always look for Raisin Cane's. And it's really simple. Chicken fingers, french fries, I love the Texas toast, and the cane sauce. So if you're ever in a place that has that and you want to bring me back some, I will still eat it no matter what. All right, favorite TV show. Let me hear it. MASH, that's an old one, Bobby, <laughs> older than me, Andy Griffith, Golden Girls, Gunsmoke, these are all before I was born, probably. <laughs> my, I, have, I broke this down with myself in two categories. The first one is cartoons, because I know that some of us watch cartoons still. Uh, my favorite cartoon is one that doesn't air anymore, but it was a Nickelodeon show called Avatar. And so that's one of my favorites. And then live shows, I like comedies, and Scrubs was my favorite and still is my favorite. It's kind of my go-to. My wife would say Friends, the thing that you can put on, and it doesn't matter where you're at or how far into the episode you are, you can just sit down and know exactly what's happening and what's going on and love it. All right, how about favorite genre of music? 70s Christian. Thank you for the Sunday school answer. 50s, 70s, hard rock, alternative, yeah. I would say I just generalized mine because I like all forms of rock. Ice cream flavor, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Strawberry, Strawberry. that one was loud and proud. Did I hear mint chocolate chip? I'm simple in this. We had this conversation with my family. We went to Runza for some ice cream and my daughter asked the question, what flavor would you get if they didn't have twist? Would you go chocolate or vanilla? And my wife said, I wouldn't have anything because I like twist too much. But I would go chocolate, my son would go chocolate. Riley said vanilla. Um, I like to stay simple and chocolate ice cream is my favorite. How about this one? Your favorite animal? Dog, horse. Where's Stacy? Hers would be a penguin. My favorite animal is a polar bear. And I have lots of reasons why. And if you'd like to talk more about polar bears after the 10:15 today, come and find me. <laughs> How about your favorite sports team? Nebraska. All right, that one was a little more obvious here. I heard a lot of Nebraska, and I chose to just not hear Ohio State from Bobby. <laughs> Last one, favorite season? Fall, spring, summer, I heard them all. I didn't hear winter, though. Who likes winter? There's a few, Mom, because it's cold. <laughs> my favorite season would be fall. 
and partly because of the previous question where my favorite sports team is Nebraska, because I like football. All right, I know that we all have favorite things, and what I found, and what probably you guys have found too, is we tend to be passionate about things that are important to us. Some of us probably get a little too passionate about some of our favorite things, like Husker football. Especially when we compare them to other things. I was looking online and I found some, some controversial things that if you love one thing, you're all for it and you hate the other thing. So here are a few examples of that. Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich or Popeye's chicken sandwich? Chick-fil-A, I'm with you on that, but that's a big thing apparently. Ford or Chevy? Greg said, I knew you were going to say that, Greg. Greg yelled Dodge. <laughs> Mountains or beaches? Mountains, I agree, but there was both, see? Coke or Pepsi? <laughs> there are going to be some fights later in the parking lot. <laughs> UPS or FedEx? UPS, FedEx, see? My wife's dad works for UPS, so I have to answer that one, UPS. Marvel or DC? Yeah. How about this one? Nebraska or Ohio State? Nebraska. See, John's not here, so I can get away with that one. So here's the question for you. I say all of those things to introduce this. Why are we so passionate about things like Husker football? Why are we so passionate about all these different things that we just yelled out? It's because I think that all of these things fill a need that we think we have. So here's the big idea for today. We were created with a need that was placed within us that only God can fill. But what happens is that we try and fill that need with other things. We try to fill it with things that make us feel good, like food or fitness or relationships. We try and fill it with things that help us escape from reality like music and TV. We try and fill it with things that give us a sense of belonging like sports teams and social groups. But what I found to be true is that none of these things can truly fill the need that we have within us. They may give us a temporary reprieve, but none of these things are a permanent solution. The phrase that I've heard to describe this is that we have a God-sized hole in our hearts that only he can fill. And when we try to fill it with other things, nothing fits. So let me phrase this another way. I read a book a number of years ago by Louis Giglio, and this is what he says. Everybody worships. Whether you consider yourself a worshiping kind of person or not, you cannot help but worship something. The most simple way I can think to describe worship is that worship is our response to what we value the most. And Louis Giglio goes on to say that worship tells us what we value most. As a result, worship determines our actions, becoming the driving force for what we do. You see, our default setting is worship, is to worship something. God placed within us a desire for something more. But how are we filling that role? If you look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says that we were created by God and we were also created for God. We were created by God for a purpose, and that purpose is to worship him. 
If you remember last week, John shared a quote by Eugene Peterson, no relation. He said, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. You see, we can either be preoccupied with ourselves or have all of our focus and energy on God. And it's very hard to do both at the same time. I would say it's probably impossible to do both at the same time. So welcome to the tension. This is where we live currently, but as we're going to see in just a little bit, this is not a brand new concept. We see this cycle throughout history of all of these things trying to pull our focus and our attention and our hearts away from God. And we also see it littered throughout Scripture. So we're going to start and take a look at Exodus chapter 32 this morning. And before I dig in, I just want to give you all a little bit of context. Uh, John talked a little bit about this last week, so we're going to kind of fill in what he talked about into the greater story. So at the beginning of Exodus, the Israelites have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And I guess if you're being technical, it's probably I should refer to them as the Hebrew people at this point. But we all know who I'm talking about now. So the Israelites have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Then God sends Moses to confront Pharaoh and tell him to let his people go. Pharaoh refused, and so God stepped in. And God sent plagues to Egypt that, as John talked about last week, were proving that he was greater than all of their gods. So if you look at the plagues that he sent, most of those correlate with some form of God that existed within the Egyptian culture. And God was basically telling the people there, my God, I am better than your God, so you should listen to me. So God proved that he was more powerful than Pharaoh and the other Egyptian gods, and then Pharaoh eventually reluctantly lets the Israelites go. But then he changes his mind and chases them down, and then God parts the Red Sea for his people to escape, and then brings the waters crashing down on the Egyptians. And then his people respond to God with praise, which is what John talked about last week. They sing this song celebrating everything that God had delivered them from and into. And then we see that the Israelites are then in the wilderness where God provides them with everything they need to survive, including water to drink and manna and quail to eat. And all of those things were provided by God for the people. They traveled through the wilderness for two months until they reached Mount Sinai where God revealed himself to them with his presence that was veiled by a thick cloud. And then Moses went up on the mountain with God and received the Ten Commandments and some other instructions on all the things that were to go in the tabernacle and then some rules and regulations for the priests as well. Which brings us to chapter 32. And this is what it says starting in verse 1. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from, from the land of Egypt. Now I want to pause right there and just talk about a few things from that verse. The first thing is this. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses. When I first read that, I said, well, how long is it taking Moses? How long was it? If you go back a few chapters to Exodus 24, we had just found out that it took them roughly two months to get um, from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And then it says in chapter 24, 18, that Moses was up on Mount Sinai with God for 40 days and 40 nights. Now imagine that with me. Moses is up on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights, and the rest of the people are down at the base of the mountain. If your leader who brought you out of Egypt disappears for 40 days in the wilderness, 
what are you probably going to think? He's dead. Maybe, as we find out, there's a, there were some rules and regulations that God had for even letting people into his presence. And we see over and over, one of the reasons why they tied a rope around the high priest when he went into the most holy place was in case he was struck dead. Then they could pull him out. So Moses was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and I'm sure that most of the people were probably wondering what Moses was up to, or even maybe starting to wonder if he was still alive. Like, is Moses coming back? And if Moses was dead, then who was going to lead them? And they say, they go to Aaron, who was kind of the the next in line, right? And they say this phrase, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to Moses who brought us here out of Egypt. If you look at the the Hebrew word here that's translated gods, that word is Elohim, which should sound a little familiar to you. Um, We hear that as as one of the names of God. There's an old song that says something to the effect of Jehovah God Elohim, the great I am. And I don't remember the rest of the words, but my dad probably could tell you all of them. But this word Elohim Um, It may sound familiar to you because it's a name for God in the Bible. But if you notice in that text, God is little g God. And that's because this word is also used to, in the Hebrew language, language to describe rulers, judges, divine ones, angels, or gods in the ordinary sense. So not only is it a name for God, but it also is just used to describe people in charge or gods in the ordinary sense. So this is where context is super important for us. And if you remember, Moses was the face that God chose to deliver his people. He was the one that God chose to go and physically confront Pharaoh with God's message. And he was the one that God chose to lead his people out. All of this was through the power of God, but Moses was the face. And so here's what happened. Moses was the go-between for God and the people. And with Moses gone, they were thinking to themselves, like, who is going to take his place? What should we do? Who's going to lead us? But as we're going to read, they are looking to the wrong place. And this would have been a golden opportunity for Aaron to kind of set them back on the right path. But let's read what happens. Verse 2. So this is right after the people go to him and say, make us some gods who can lead us. Aaron says, Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All of the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. I wrote in my notes, swing and a miss, Aaron, for a few reasons. Aaron told the people to gather their gold earrings. He melted it down, and he shaped it into a calf. Back in the Ten Commandments, one of the things that they're not supposed to do is put any other God before Yahweh God. And here he broke that rule. Then, and I heard some audible 
gasping when I got to this part. They said, these are the gods who brought us out of Egypt. True or false? False. Because we know God, Yahweh God, the one true God, was the one that brought them out of Egypt. And then Aaron got caught up in the excitement. He saw all of the people were excited. And then he said, tomorrow is going to be a festival to the Lord. And if you notice that Lord, that's Yahweh. L-O-R-D, all caps, whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that's referring to Yahweh God, the one true God. So they get up the next morning. They make burnt offerings and peace offerings, which both of those things were prescribed by God. But then what happens next? After that, they celebrate with feasting, drinking, and pagan revelry. Now, there are a few things that I noticed here that caused this scene. First off, it didn't take very long, but the Israelites forgot what God had done for them. Second, they, they reverted back to what was a part of the culture that they were in for many, many years in Egypt. So two months plus 40 days equals just a little bit over three months. That was how long it took the Israelites to forget. Now imagine with me, you're in Egypt for some of them, most of them, well, all of them, that was all they ever knew was slavery in Egypt, and then they were set free. They saw plagues sent down by God on the people. They saw Pharaoh reluctantly let them go. They saw God part the Red Sea. They saw God provide for them every single day in the wilderness with all the things they needed to survive. They saw all of those things. And what happened? They forgot. They forgot God. They forgot what God did for them. So just over three months had passed from when they left Egypt until the golden calf incident. The Israelites had seen God's power revealed through all of those things, and they forgot all of that in that moment when they lost their leader and were asking themselves, what's next? So not only did they forget what God had done for them, but they reverted back to the idolatry that they had experienced in Egypt. You see, Egypt was a polytheistic culture, and so in Egypt, they worship many gods. And in reality, they had a god for pretty much everything under the sun and the sun. Egypt's main god was Ra, the god of the sun, sun gods. They, had, they worshiped a sun god, gods of war and fertility, gods of life, gods of death, and the list goes on and on. And the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and so they knew these things. They saw the Egyptians worship. They were entrenched in that culture because they were slaves to it. And it's interesting to me that Aaron shaped the gold into the image of a calf. When I was reading through one of the footnotes in my Bible, made reference to an Egyptian god named Apis. And that god, its physical form was a bull. And that God was the God of fertility of crops and livestock. Now, I can't say for sure, but the very first place that my mind went was, here are the people in the middle of the wilderness. Moses was gone, or so they thought. And they were thinking, what's next? How can I provide for myself? So they cry out to the God that was going to give them good crops and good livestock so they could provide for themselves. Now, that doesn't say that expressly in scriptures, but logically that makes sense in my mind. They form this shape of a calf and they cry out. They celebrate. 
And I can't say for sure that Aaron had all of those things in mind when he shaped the idol, but to me, that makes sense. Not only did Aaron revert back to this Egyptian idolatry by making the calf, but he, the people fell into it as well, and they said, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Aaron made one idol, but then they used the word these. They were lumping this god in that the idol represented in this pool of other gods, including Yahweh, the one true God. And suddenly it wasn't just Yahweh that brought them out of Egypt, but it was these gods. And then to them, much like John talked about last week, the only fitting response to this act of freeing them was for them to praise these gods. So they woke up the next morning, offered sacrifices, which God instructed them to do as part of their worship, but then they participated in pagan revelry. And if you look at that word, um, it can mean a lot of different things. But as you look at the context, and Paul even refers back to this example when he um, quotes this in the New Testament as well. So this would be one of those hyperlinks that you can look at on your own time. Um, but Paul refers back to this saying, don't do this. Don't do all of the, the worshiping of idols and um, sexual immorality and things like that, which is where we get pagan revelry. So the only fitting response was for them to worship, but they did it in the wrong way. Part of what God instructed them to do earlier in Exodus as part of their worship was to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings to him. But I want you to see what, exactly what's happening here. The Israelites were taking the things that were prescribed by God, and then they were adding something that definitely was not prescribed by God. They got up in, early in the morning and they offered sacrifices to God, and then they took it one step further and celebrated with feasting, drinking, and pagan revelry. They were mixing God's prescribed methods of worshiping him with pagan methods. Essentially, they were participating in improper worship. They weren't treating Yahweh, the one true God, like the one true God, but just another God. And truthfully, it's easy for us to sit here today and see all of the ways that, that Aaron and the Israelites messed up. Isn't that what we've been talking about? Even you could go back to Judges. You could go back to Jonah. And we sit here in our seats and say, man, they really screwed up. Failing to see that a lot of times we're exactly like them. We're probably more like the Israelites than we like to think. How many times have we forgotten the ways that God has worked in our lives and given into the idolatry that our culture offers us? How many times have we looked to other things for our comfort or guidance instead of looking to God? Even inside the church, are we more concerned with the types of songs that we sing than the God we are supposed to be singing to? I'll be honest with you. Like that, that phrase that I just said, it's hard for me a little bit too. And John mentioned this last week. There are songs that we sing here at Westway that John doesn't like. I'm involved in the process of all the songs that we pick, and I'll be honest with you, there are songs that we sing at Westway that stylistically, I don't like. But one of the things that we work so hard to do is make sure the words are what matters. Because style is a preference. 
But if we're not singing songs that are praising God and doing all of these things that we describe, then we're missing the boat. And I think that's why one reason why we sing songs of praise here at the 1015, to remind ourselves of who God is and declare our praise and our allegiance to him, to fight against all of the things that are pulling our attention away from him and refocus our attention on the one God that matters. That's why we sing songs like we did today, where you hear phrases like this. You are the only king forever. Forevermore, you are victorious. We sang these words, none above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne, it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my God is the ancient of days. I hope that when we sing these words, they're not just empty words, but that we would pay close attention to the lyrics and that we would truly express these things because they're true, yes, but because we've experienced that God that we're singing to. Let's look on in in verse 7. So after all those things, after the burnt offerings, the peace offerings, the pagan revelry, the Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they've turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They've melted down gold and made a calf. They've bowed down and sacrificed to it. They're saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. Yeah, I chuckle a little bit every time I read those verses too. At first, this is the first image that pops into my head. I revert back and God kind of sounds like a parent that's upset with a child. And you hear the, the phrase, he used the phrase, Um, your people who you brought from the land of Egypt. So God, like part of what makes the Israelites who they are is they're God's chosen people. They're his people, right? But here he says to Moses, your people who you brought out of Egypt. Like, doesn't that just sound like your parent when they're mad? Like when my son messes up and I'm mad at him, I go to my wife and say, your son did this, right? God has a sense of humor too but he was not laughing in this instant. So he says, your people who you brought out of Egypt, not my people. And I may laugh a little bit at this phrasing, but this was not a laughing matter to God. And he goes on to say phrases like this, they have corrupted themselves. And the word there for corrupted means spoiled, ruined, or perverted. They took their worship and offered it to something that was undeserving. They offered their worship to something other than Yahweh, the one true God, and they corrupted their worship and they corrupted their offerings. They perverted it. They took something that God intended for good 
and corrupted it. Then God said, how quickly they have turned away. We just talked about this, two months plus 40 days. They're a stubborn and rebellious people. Now, if you look at the greater context of Scripture, you see this over and over, this cycle where the people, they fall away from God, and then God creates a way back to him, and then things are good for a little while, and then they fall away again. And it's because of this. They're stubborn and rebellious people. And this was Israel's condition as you read through the Old Testament, but guess what? I'm stubborn. Just ask my wife. I, that's me too. It's our condition today. Then God says, my fierce anger will blaze against them and I will destroy them. You see, there are real consequences for sinning against God. And those consequences are just judgment and death. God was ready to start over. If you remember back, God had promised to Abraham that he was going to take him and make him into a great nation, that his descendants would be a great nation. And we're seeing that process right here. They're almost to the point where they're getting to go into the promised land and fulfill all of the promises that God had made to Abraham. So close, and God's ready to start over. He said, I'm ready to wipe them all out, let my anger burn against them, and I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to restart with Moses. That's what he said, right? Then I will make you, Moses, a great nation. The next couple verses are also a little comical in my mind, so let's go ahead and read those. We're in verse 11. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people who you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? Why then let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with with the evil intentions of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give them all of this land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. So here we see Moses kind of talk God down off the ledge a little bit. And he did it through reminding him his own words and kind of flipped the script back. You remember God said, your people who you brought from the land of Egypt, now Moses took that and flipped it back to God. Nope, they're not my people, God. They're yours. You brought them out of Egypt because of the things that you did with your strong hand. So why let the Egyptians have the the gratification of saying, God just took them out of Egypt so that he could bring them into the wilderness and slaughter them? Remember the promise you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a key word right there, remember. So Moses talked God down off the ledge and reminded him of the promise that he had made. And this is where I'm kind of going to stop in the story. There's many more verses in this chapter, and I want to encourage you on your own time to read through the rest of that and see exactly what happens. But I want to shift gears and give you guys another example in a little bit. So the Israelites were being pulled away from God by the idolatry that they learned in Egypt. They forgot everything that God had done for them, and they tried to replace it. They tried to replace God with something that would never fulfill them. So keep that in your mind, and let's transition now to Acts chapter 17. Just a little context before we dig in here. Paul 
who was originally called Saul, was a Pharisee, and he was involved in the persecution of Christians. And one day, he was walking on the, on the road to Damascus, and he was struck blind, and there he met a figure on the road that turned out to be Jesus, and asked Saul this question, why are you persecuting me? Jesus called Saul out for persecuting Christians, and then on, in that moment, he was changed. And Paul was changed after that meeting and regained his sight. And after that day, it says that he immediately started preaching. So he went from persecuting Christians to immediately preaching Jesus. He started preaching Jesus and traveled across the known world at that time, preaching and starting churches. And while he was on one of these missionary journeys, he visited the city of Athens, which leads us to where we're at in chapter 17. And I'm going to start in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. And he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then he t they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. And it should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul was in Athens, and what he found, which Athens at that time was probably the intellectual center of the known world, and he found a city that was full of idols, which caused him, as it said, to be deeply troubled. Another translation of that would say, his spirit stirred within him. And it seemed much like the Egyptians that we just read about, that the people of Athens had a God for everything under the sun. In fact, Athens was named after a Greek goddess, Athena. And so the Athenians, they wanted to make sure that they were covering all of their bases. So they requested that Paul come and tell us more about this new teaching because they wanted to know what it was all about. Let's read on in verse 22. So Paul was standing before the council and he addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. So Paul found that the people in Athens were very religious people. In fact, they had a God for everything they could think of. And just to make sure they had a God for literally everything, they made an altar that said, to an unknown God. So just in case we didn't cover everything with the known gods, here's one for an unknown God, just in case. So Paul used that to his advantage, and he addressed the people. And what he found was that there wasn't a lack of worship in Athens. There was plenty of it. People knew how to worship. Instead, he found a people like, that felt like there was something more that deserved their worship. They just didn't know exactly what. The Athenians were unaware that there was a God that was greater than all the gods that they had set up idols and altars for. 
So Paul took it upon himself to educate him. And this is where it gets really good, in my opinion. Verse 24. Let me tell you about this unknown God that you worship without knowing. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he had appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. And that ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So here we are, 2,000-ish years removed from Paul's time in Athens. But as I look around the culture that we live in today, I see a lot of similarities. People are still building altars to everything under the sun. The altars that we build just look a little different. The people of Athens were unaware that there was a God greater than all their little gods, and they were casting a wide net hoping that they would find fulfillment that they were so desperate for. Never encountering the story of Jesus was keeping them from God. And the gospel is what gave them the chance to draw near. They needed to come to the realization that the one true God was what they were searching for. And it said some did. Some joined Paul and became believers, but many did not. And I can't help but read these verses and think that we are no different from these two stories that we read about today. Sometimes it feels like we're searching for God like a needle in a theological haystack, but God isn't hiding. God isn't unknowable. In fact, he's been looking for us for a long time. He knows who we are, and he wants us to know him. He wants us to know that he created us in his image and that we are the object of his affection, made by him and for him. He wants us to know that this unknown God has a name and that the incredible desire that he's placed within us for something more is really a desire for us to come near to him and to offer him all of our worship and affection. So I want to end today with a question. What is it that is pulling your heart from God? Are there things in your life that you are giving more of yourself to than God? You know what the definition of an idol is? Anything that we take and put on a higher pedestal than God. 
Now for us, these probably aren't as obvious as fashioning a golden calf out of gold collected from among our, our body here at Westway. But odds are that we have something. And that these things aren't necessarily bad things, but here's the kicker. Even good things can become bad things when we place it above God. So where's your focus? That thing may be a relationship, a dream that you have, friends, status, stuff, a name, some kind of pleasure. Follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, and your loyalty. And at the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. So if you're a Christian here this morning, I have good news for you. God made a way for you to come back to him. If you're not a Christian and you're here in this room with us, I have good news for you. God made a way for you to come to him. So whether you relate more to the Israelites who knew who God was, they just forgot and needed a reminder, or whether you relate more to the the Athenians who were looking and searching for something more, come to find out, Paul said that was God. We're all in the same boat. God created a way for us to come back to him. And that way is Jesus. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13 says this, In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know that the covenant promises God made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Jesus Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Jesus is what helps us draw near to God. One of the things that the Israelites forgot to do was to remember God. They lost sight of it. Remember God, what he has done for us, what he is doing for us, and what he will do. And make Christ the cornerstone of everything that we do. One way that we try to do that here at Westway is by taking this cup and remembering what God did for us every single week. So if you have these around you, I want to invite you to take those out at this time and go ahead and start to open them up. If you think back to that story we just read in Exodus, the Israelites needed to remember what God did for them. The moment they lost sight of that, they fell right back into their old ways. And I love when Moses is, is talking to God, one of the very things he said was, remember the promise you made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob about what you were going to do. We have the opportunity to do this weekly here at Westway. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 said that when Jesus took the bread and the cup, he said, do this in remembrance of me. So when we meet together here at Westway every single week, that's one of the reasons why we do this every single week, is so that we can constantly remind ourselves what God did for us when he sent Jesus to die on a cross so that when his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us, we can constantly remember the significance of that and what it means for us. So I want to invite you to go ahead and take the bread at this time. And as we take this, remember 
God's body, or Jesus' body, sorry, that was broken for us. Let's take the bread together. And the same thing with the blood. As you take this juice, remember that this represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take this together. Father in heaven, sometimes I just need to pause and remember who you are and what you've done. And throughout this series so far, we've described worship as responding to you because of what you've done for us in the past, what you are currently doing in our lives, and what you promise that you will do for us in the future. So Father, help us to not be so easily swayed by the culture that we find ourselves in. Help us to not be so easily pulled away from you and drawn to all of the different things that are vying for our attention. But God, help us to remember you and what you have done for us, how you created a way for us to be reunited with you. Father, I know I need that reminder, and I know I'm not the only one in this room. So Father, we thank you for the many things that you do in our lives. We love you so much, and I pray all of these things in your name.